to me, you know, the, the, I love those sort of disparity and recollections. I mean, that's what that's what makes to me a great story and great history. <laughs> Welcome back to a, a welcome, I guess, to an exclusive bonus special. How more important can I make this sound? Interview uh, on here on a 1980s Now. Uh, our show, which you probably know already, right, is, a, is an examination of the importance of 1980s pop culture and its influence right now. And this guest that I'm about to bring on, you know, epitomizes that in the sense that in the very least, not only did he live in the 1980s like we did and grow up in that era, but he wrote a book now, which was just published, it's available now, but it's about a really fun, or it's based on, loosely, on a fun, exciting uh, incident that happened in the 1980s. So there you go. You got your 1980s and your now. And, and I'm talking about a radio contest that happened in Southern California that really did in the early 1980s uh, during an era where you remember this, I'm sure, right? Radio stations, I don't know if they do this today anymore. They probably do, but there's a challenge with that, and I'm going to bring this up with our guest about how maybe there's just too much going on for these things to be special anymore. But but uh, back then, no matter where you are throughout the country, you listen to the radio, they undoubtedly had contests to get you to listen and get folks excited about uh, being part of a community that were the, you know, the listeners of this particular radio station. Well, in Southern California, it was no different. You had an AM station, so this is, you know, before FM stations dominated the airwaves with with popular music uh, throughout the 1980s, because FM wasn't the go-to medium early on. You know, that was a technology that uh, was developed and then became more popular because of the better quality of sound, uh, you know, as as time went on. But here at the beginning of the 1980s, you had this AM radio station, uh, the Mighty 690 in Southern California, that gave away away $50,000 uh, to attract new listeners and again get their their base excited about being a part of this you know community. Let me know about what radio station you had in your area when you grew up and what kind of crazy things they may may have done. Where I grew up, uh, just uh, across the uh, Hudson River, there from Manhattan in, in Jersey City, New Jersey, we had uh, New York's. Uh, we had several New York radio stations, but the one that I gravitated most towards in my youth and my younger years, and as I you know became a teenager for a period of time was Z100, you know, was which was uh, headed up by uh, Scott Shannon. And uh, Scott Shannon, uh, you know, had all, brought all these great ideas to try to get attention to the radio station, including uh, different giveaways. So, uh, look, I got really excited about participating in those, including just the ones where you had to dial in real quickly and try to be the 100th caller. I was never the 100th caller. I just always got a busy signal. Or someone told you what number you were and then hung up immediately. You know, 70. It was really bad when you got really high, right, in the numbers there. 92, 95, okay, just missed it. That sucked. Z100 also had a van that drove around, and if you could spot it in the wild, you'd get a T-shirt or something like that. Anyway, that was very exciting. Anyway, hey, let's bring out our guest, and we'll talk to to him about his his new book, The Mighty 690. Our guest today is the author of the Yesternow column that appeared in Southern California's OC Weekly between 2019 and 2021. His articles, which focused on pop culture history, uh, were given two awards by the Los Angeles Press Club, where he was also nominated as Journalist of the Year in 2020. 
Our guest is also an attorney, which I find interesting, and I want to chat with him about this as having a similar background in that regard, but then turning to fiction. Uh, but as an attorney, he's also been a guest on CNN and Fox Business News and has had his insights on trade, international business, and things that are much smarter than uh, we cover on the show, featured in the Wall Street Journal and The Economist. But as I mentioned, today, he's going to chat with us about his new novel, The Mighty 690, a fictionalized account of the actual events that transpired in Southern California during the summer of 1981. And here's the synopsis, all right? If I wasn't clear enough, a struggling AM radio station buried $50,000 in cash and gave its listeners clues as to its location one a day until the money was found. Set against the backdrop of a California landscape very much in flux, the story resonates evenly between desperation, hope, and suburban dissonance. The book is available everywhere now, and we encourage you to support a local bookstore by getting your copy on bookshop.org. In fact, we put a link in the show notes below to make it real simple for you. Hey, please welcome to the show, Alexander Hamilton Sharon. How you doing, Alex? Good. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Look, I first, I just got a nerd out about a, a non-1980s uh, thing now. I mean, did you get very excited when this Hamilton musical gets popular and your name is Alexander Hamilton Sharon? I appreciate that. Um, I live most of my life, as you can imagine, um, with a love-hate relationship with my middle name. Mm -hmm. uh, it is my mother's middle name. It's a family name. Um, as an eighth grader, not so cool. Uh, <laughs> but when the girl comes out, um, you know, you, it gets you there a little bit. So I appreciate you uh, bringing that up. <laughs> you know, it would have been cooler in elementary school had he won the duel. For sure. <laughs> For sure. To be on the losing end of that, not so good. But um uh, yeah, again, um, didn't really use it much uh, when I was younger, when I started to kind of get a little bit more comfortable with uh, uh, who I was creatively. Uh, it's it's a little easier to use now. So thanks. So speaking about, uh, you, you know, uh, creativity, though, or, or discovering who you were creatively, as you said, uh, you were a lawyer by training, uh, an award winning journalist. At what point do you make a decision to try fiction? So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. I really um, sort of struggled with uh, who I am creatively for a lot of years. Um, you know, obviously growing up, grew up in a family where both my parents were college professors, uh, both focused on reading and literature. And, you know, was obviously drawn to um, uh, creative writing then. Um you know, but then the 80s came along and there was, you know, a, a lot of focus on sort of the, the you know, material aspects of what you need to do for your profession. And, you know, you need to to get a good job and you need to go to grad school. And so, you know, went down that path and, you know, practice law for a number of years um, and really I, I found it interesting, uh, but it really didn't fulfill, you know, any creative need I had. So was lucky enough uh, towards the end of my uh, legal career uh, to find uh, an editor for a local paper, the OC Weekly here in Orange County, California, um, who I knew and was looking for someone to fill the back page column for uh, a, a, a column that had been disbanded up to that point called Yesternow, which was a little bit of a study of pop culture history in Southern California. And he really gave me an opportunity and um you know, turn that into creative writing on a more consistent basis. And then the book, The Mighty 690, which is actually coming out next week. I'm a lawyer as well. And I remember, I don't practice, but I'm a licensed here in Ohio. But uh, I remember I was part of a writing group, a creative writing group, not too many years ago. And I read a sample 
And the the old guy in the group who'd been there for, you know, as long as the group existed and had, I don't know, 30 books under his book said, what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm a lawyer. He said, I can tell by the writing. So it sounds like writing for the OC maybe was a good bridge in a sense because you were like this, like the story you wrote about the, the summer of, of $50,000 uh, for the OC first, kind of a bridge between focusing more on the actual, what actually happened versus your book, which takes some license. Absolutely. So you, you know, better than anyone being a lawyer that, you know, law school really pounds into you this notion of you have to write efficiently. Um, you know, creativity is um, sort of disregarded uh, by courts and by your audience and by your client. I mean, you really have to be an efficient, focused writer. And there's a need for that, as you know, you and I, um, you know, found out as lawyers. Uh, but it really, it, it, it doesn't at the end of the day, really satisfy or wasn't satisfying for me. And so, yeah, finding this opportunity to write for uh, the OC Weekly and do exactly what my law school, you know, legal writing professors told me not to do. Um, that was a, a fantastic <laughs> exercise. Yeah. I remember, I think it was in a legal writing class talking about writing complaints where they, you have to tell a story, you know, tell a story to try to win your, but don't go too far, you know, right. <laughs> But yeah, you do get taught to have a tight story in a sense, which is better for, for even a novelist. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I can't, I can't shed that completely. So this book is, is short by most standards. You know, there's some vestiges of that kind of legal writing that are still there, but um, much more creative than you'd ever find or that I ever found in doing a legal brief or a right. complaint. Now, you know, as we mentioned, you had first written a short, again, more, uh, you know, accurate account, I suppose, of, of what happened of this contest that the Mighty 690 held in, in Southern California there in, in the early 1980s. Why is it, did you choose this story to write your novel? So, you know, this, again, it's, it's inspired by actual events. And as you mentioned, I wrote a, a, an article for the OC Weekly a few years ago, which was, you know, more of a, a, a factual description of the actual contest. But I remember being 11 years old in the summer of 1981 in Southern California and how fascinating I thought that this radio contest was. And I also, as I got older, realized that, you know, one of the many things that the 80s provided was, um, you know, we, we didn't have a lot of things to find commonality over. Um, TV, radio were those things. And, you know, as we, you know, as I'm raising kids now and we get further and further away from the 1980s, you realize that um, there is so much content and there are so many vehicles to, to provide content that we've sort of lost this um, sort of these events of common interest. And so I really started to think about that. And I think it was probably one of the last instances of this contest in 1981 where, you know, really the entirety of Southern California and, you know, regardless of socioeconomic status or what part of SoCal you lived in or what your educational background was. I mean, this was really a, a thing that, that everybody could relate to. And I guess just to be clear for folks, we're talking about uh, your book, The Mighty 690, which tells the story. And look, they, they had tons of, you point this out in your article and uh, certainly in the book as well, that there's just, there were tons, hundreds of these radio contests throughout the country as even as FM became a more popular medium and folks are now vying for ears, uh, giving away money, concert tickets uh, and the like. But this one was specific to this radio station that you heard there in Southern California. And they were giving away $50,000 if you could, if you could find the, find it, uh, given the clues. 
And your your book tells a story of uh, a number of different folks from different backgrounds to attempting to do exactly that. Now, I remember when you wrote your your piece, it, it, you know, you point out uh, that your recollection of what happened was not as romantic or, or your, the reality of what happened was not as romantic as your recollection. Uh, but it's in your book, you more chose to lean on what you had thought had happened. Or, or hoped it happened, right. Had hoped it happened. Yes, yeah. I mean, the, the real contest took place over, you know, the course of a week in, in the summer of 1981. And, you know, the radio station would give out a clue every day over, you know, five days as to the whereabouts of where the radio station had actually buried cash. And I mean, think about that concept today of actually burying $50,000 <laughs> in cash. Nobody uses cash anymore. Um, yeah. You know, but I think, you know, as I did my research for the article in the OC Weekly, you know, found out that it was, you know, just um, some random guy who happened to piece the clues together and found, um, you know, the money. And it actually wasn't cash that was buried. It was a piece of paper, you know, a license plate, you know, somewhere in Redondo Beach, which to me was far less interesting than the possibilities. And so that the possibilities had always stuck with me. And, you know, what if and, and. you know, I know that this contest appealed to a, a broad array of people from different backgrounds and really wanted to tie that together in the book. Right. Yeah. I, I can't imagine <laughs> how they determined it was behind this license plate even, you know, especially since people like you thought it was buried. That's how it seemed to have been described. Yeah. I, I know the elephant was a clue and then so a trunk and the trunk of a car, but still that was pretty remarkable to me. It was, and I you know, was lucky enough to talk to um, a few years ago before I did the article for the OC weekly to talk to one of the um, radio station managers who was there at the time. Um, and he was good enough to walk me through it and said, look, they were really concerned um, that somebody that the money was not intended for would, would find it if they used actual cash. And so you know, sure. station management had told them that, no, it needed to be a slip of paper and they needed to verify that, you know, the person was of age and, you know, and all these things, which to me doesn't really lend itself to, to good fiction. And so, again, I, I, I had a good time writing the article about the actual events, but I had a better time, I think, writing about the fictionalized version. And, and you know, you mentioned folks being of age and I imagine just for, for you know, uh, contest law purposes, you had to be a, an adult, you had to be 18. Yep. But, you know, in, in your piece, you talk about how, Kids, you know, teenagers would get their older brothers or their parents involved to go in this search. And I remember being a teenager getting excited about these types of contests on the radio, too. Not concerned with whether or not I could actually even be awarded the prize. Yeah, that 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 was something you worried about after the fact. Right. It was yeah. participating. It was about, you know, doing these sort of communal things. And it's it's fascinating to me because, you know, since I wrote this book, I've really tried to pay attention. You know, are there you know, instances like today, I don't think that this opportunity really exists is, you know, they, the eighties were a perfect time that everybody felt like, you know, they had some skin in the game over these radio contests. And I just don't know if that kind of mass appeal exists today. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So many of the things that we loved as kids obviously are gone. You know, I was thinking, I was lamenting recently, I think it was a box of cereal that my daughter had that said, you know, scan this QR code for a, a app. Right. I was like, what is this? I want to find that, you know, Barney Rubble uh, coin per per pouch, (laughs) whatever. Exactly. Well, think about that. I mean, cereal boxes back then, I mean, you'd have to cut out the backs and literally put them in an envelope and mail them in with a stamp. I mean, nothing exists today. So I think the experience may be lost on this generation. Yeah. And almost like, you you know, you were saying about, uh, and it's really, it's interesting, right? Because we think about, uh, 
not to get too political, but certainly I think it's, and even an apolitical person would say that we, we see more divided than we did back in the 1980s. And what's curious is like what you're, you were pointing out is how pop culture held us together, at least in some way. For sure. Because we had fewer choices. We had these cooler, you know, water cooler type things to talk about. Absolutely. I mean, I go back to the television landscape, you know, which for a kid in the 1980s was everything. And, you know, in Southern California, there were six, maybe seven channels, which meant six or seven programs that you could choose from at night and talk to your friends about the next day. It really, right. you know, it was a common thread of connection, um, which as wonderful as the Internet and streaming services are, just it doesn't carry the same kind of ethos that it did back then. Yeah, and having a, you know, obviously there's more choice as far as content goes, but I wonder if you need to your point about radio contests even or contests generally today that each one is, I imagine there's still tons, but they're diluted in a sense because there is so much choice. None of them has the impact that a, you know, summer of 50,000 would. Agreed. I think that's right. And, you know, I just think that choices have become very stratified, right? With, with, with streaming and with pop culture, you know, you've got, you know, every flavor on demand and, you know, people feel comfortable you know, staying in their boxes and, you know, not necessarily venturing out, you know, in the eighties, when you had more limited choices, I think it forced people to get out of their, their comfort zone a little bit and say, Hey, this is what's out there. And this is what's connecting. People. Yeah. And I know, I know earlier you mentioned how, when you did your piece in, in the OC that uh, uh, you spoke to a radio manager and I think maybe that was what Ted Zeigenbush. Yes. And That's I know there was some dis- <laughs> some discussion whether or not he came up with the idea for the summer of 50,000 treasure hunt based on his experience as a kid or not. Yes. I know Michael Boss says maybe that's not true, but. Yes. Well, that it's interesting. So, you you know, your you know, your history of the Mighty 690. So those I did talk to Ted and, you know, I very much used his um, childhood inspiration, you know, growing up in um, um, sort of further out from um, uh, Los Angeles. Uh, in the Inland Empire. Um, and then, yeah, there was some dispute as to whether Michael Boss actually came up with the contest. But to me, you know, the, the, I love those sort of disparity and recollections. I mean, that's what that's what makes, to me, a great story and great history. Yeah. And, and I remember in that piece, you quoted Ted as saying that, you know, you couldn't with the like you're t- talking about with these with regard to these other things with the advent of social media, you couldn't do a treasure hunt type contest because the secret would get out you know, before the treasure was buried, I think he says. Instantaneously. I mean, think about that. There was some, um, you know, there was some romantic notion of if you put a a, a treasure hunt contest on, you know, the, the, um, the buildup will be so fantastic that, you know, people will listen and, you know, they'll talk about it. And, you know, those opportunities don't exist today. It would be instantaneous. We, we live in a culture now In my opinion, you know, unlike the 1980s where we believe in, you know, sort of this instant gratification. And I think that, you know, back then, you know, this contest contest or this type of contest worked because um, there was no Internet. There was no email. There was no there was no cable television. I mean, you just you really relied on your neighbors and getting outside as sort of your channel of communication. Yeah. Yeah. And I love how. In reality, in the short in the, in the short stories that we do know about what the folks that were going after it, and in your book, how people are how people work together. You know, you've got these different groups of people, and some folks have partners of sorts, and uh, that you have you know that they're having to lean on somebody in a way that today you know you'd have somebody with an app and 
<laughs> maybe want to just covet covet the entire fifty thousand for themselves. Correct, correct. I mean, think of that that concept of board games and how popular board games were in the nineteen eighties, right? It forced right. you to, to work together and to be at the table together. And you know, you don't need to do that anymore. My kids play these games with their friends over text, and you know, why bother getting together? You know, you mentioned about uh, we were talking about the disparity, I guess, in accounts of what have ha- what actually happened, and. Uh, in your 2018 piece, you made a, I thought you made a great observation about how folks seem more interested in debunking myths today than actually celebrating them. And I agree with you. And one of the things that I want to find a, a magician from our, you know, from our time that we grew up watching to talk about this, because I am driven crazy, Alex, by people on TikTok who show a magician do a trick and then immediately show you how to do it. What is the point? I, I drive me crazy. I, and, not, and not to be not to be, you know, overly analytical, but, you know, I think that that we really believed in the 80s, um, the late 70s and, and, and 80s as well you know, in kind of this um, anything is possible mentality. And now we live in a society of, um, well, it's not possible unless you show me and you show me how to do it now. And I, mm. we're really doing ourselves a disservice with that. I mean, you're, 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 you're absolutely right. Um, you know, I remember as a kid, you know, the, the urban myths about, you know, the, the, the poor kid who I think was from Ohio, but, you know, people will tell me that he's from elsewhere, you know, who ate, Pop rocks and drank a soda. Floated. <laughs> right. I don't want to know that that's false. You know, I want to know <laughs> that maybe that was possible. You know, it forces people to talk about it. It forces, you know, shared interests, short, shared commonalities. And, you know, who, who, who cares whether it's true? Or not? <laughs> that's funny. I could tell you that one. I'm not going to tell you that, but I could tell you. Okay. <laughs> and I say all that, and now I remember that we did an episode where we were debunking urban myths from our childhood. Right. But, I, you know, now I'm going I'm to make a distinction okay. between magic and that. And magic is, is magic. It's supposed to exist in that folks have it, you know, there's sort of this uh, the suspension of disbelief, you know, where we come into wanting to believe this stuff. And I know you understand, maybe it's different, maybe it's not different because you want to believe these urban myths. The point of me with the urban myths was because simultaneously at the same time we had these cynical folks saying, I need to see it to believe it. You have a great swath of people that believe in utter nonsense without any proof of it. It's ironic. I, 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 it's ironic for sure. Um, You know, and one of the things I try to point to in this book is that I think a lot of people with these urban myths and, you know, whether they believe them or whether they don't believe them, I think a lot of times act out of, you know, a sense of, for lack of a better word, desperation, right? They want to believe in something. Um, whether it's, you know, comical or whether it's, it's, you know, inspirational. And I, and I think that we have, um, you know, sort of transitioned from, you know, a a time when this book, the mighty 690 was written about people do things because they're, they're, they're desperate to some extent to want to find the truth because they hope it's true to, you know, we've transitioned to, you know, people wanting to, get to the bottom of the truth so they can show other people that they're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like that to me, even with the magic thing, almost that folks, it's an easy way for me to show that maybe I'm smart or I have knowledge right? because I can debunk this one thing or not debunk. That's not the right word. Reveal. I mean, revealing a trick is not debunking a trick. It's, you know, whatever. Anyway, it's terrible. The folks in the, at least look, we only have a little bit of information about the folks that really, some of the folks that really, that uh, not only won the contest or competed in the real, to find the real treasure, we have a lot more information in your book because you wrote it, obviously. 
what, how did you go about picking the type of characters that you would portray, portray in your fictional account? So these, it's a good question. These, these, you know, I, I write from personal experience and these characters in the mighty six ninety yeah. are all based on, you know, people that I knew or observed mm. or interacted with as a, as a child. And, Right around that time in 1981, where the the contest in the book is set, where people were moving away from the cities into the suburbs, um, and uh, you know there was a little bit of loneliness that came with that. So, you know, I really wanted to to sort of reflect that sense of loneliness, um, but that sense of you know, hey, um, I'm going to shoot for the stars here because you know I need the money. Now, knowing the story, and I'm not going to spoil anything for anybody. But there's one character I want to ask you about then, huh? But I won't if it's based on someone you know. Okay. Huh. I won't ask you. I'll, I'll just say the name. I'll say the name of the character. You got it. Sally. I'm wondering what, to what extent Sally did real things, did the things as portrayed in your book. So Sally is based on on an, an actual person um, that, that I knew, um, but she did none of the things that are okay. Okay. in the book. She's a much <laughs> Uh, um, but she really, to me reflected, you know, she was a single mom, um, who lived in the neighborhood where I grew up and, you know, she carried all the hopes and dreams that the eighties and living in the eighties the in Southern California brought. And, uh, I think she really typified that. The fact that you chose to feature all these different characters, the fact that you chose to use this particular contest from the early 1980s. Uh, I, I don't imagine the story you're telling is it, it, look, it's not simply about obviously this folks trying to get this money in a nutshell, or, or what is the thing that you want to leave folks with that you're trying to convey in this, using this particular story? So I appreciate the question. It's, it's a very, I wanted to capture a very unique time and place, um, which I think the mighty 690 does. And I think it uses the, the radio contest as a vehicle to do that. But you know, going back to, you know, our earlier conversation about, you know, um, sort of the social landscape now versus the 1980s, I really wanted to to point out, you know, that we've lost this ability to centralize um, and have commonality around, you know, really cool um, things, um, you know, on the radio and on television. And, you know, with all the benefits that come with this decentralization of you know, media and streaming and, you know, songs on demand that we've really lost the ability to connect with each other over those things. You're speaking to the right audience here because we all long for so much of those days as well. Uh, Alex, I want to thank you for talking to us today about your book, The Mighty 690. Certainly we're going to encourage folks to to read it. Uh, it's, a, it's a great uh, story that I think will remind a lot of folks, not only about the sort of different uh, ways our cultures or the way the culture sort of differed back then, but also about just about the excitement about a radio contest, plain and simple. Really, really appreciate it. Appreciate the time. And uh, yeah, maybe one of these days uh, we'll, uh, we'll hear a radio contest again. I miss that era. You know, I don't know that <laughs> this might just speak to my personality, but I, I don't think that I get so excited about the potential for winning things anymore as I did when I was a teenager. I don't know if that has to, you know, or a younger person. I don't know if that has to do with my age, like I mentioned, or the fact that nothing really leaps out to me. You know, it gets, gets me so excited anymore. And I think because like we talked with Alex, there's just a deluge of so much. I don't even, offhand, I can't even think of who's winning, you know, hearing news stories about folks winning the lottery and those types of things anymore, you know? I don't know, it probably happens. 
Anyway, I do miss those days of, of, of radio contests. And let me know, as I mentioned, if, if you, what station you listen to around the country and whether, you know, what they tried to do or what they, you know, not what they tried, what they did to uh, reach uh, new listeners. Uh, you can write to me at will at 1980snow.com. And while you're at it, uh, please uh, follow us on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on right now. Uh, subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Facebook. Those are absolutely 100% free to do, and they really uh, tremendously help our show. Next, uh, on our next episode of 1980s Now, speaking of things from the 1980s, which is what we always do, we're talking about uh, where entertainment is headed today, whether or not um, some of the trends we're seeing, some of the scary, dangerous trends we're seeing uh, may be tied to uh, what we, how we consume media in the 1980s. I'll say it that way. Anyway, it's a lot more interesting than what it just sounded like, I think. Anyway, I will talk to you then on 1980s Now. <laughs>